essays in idleness. 19. The changing of the seasons is deeply moving in its every manifestation. People seem to agree that autumn is the best season to appreciate the beauty of things. That may well be true, but the sights of spring are even more exhilarating. The cries of the birds that gradually take on a peculiarly spring-like quality. And in the gentle sunlight, the bushes begin to sprout along the fences. Then as spring deepens, a mist is spread over the landscape and the cherry blossoms seem ready to open only for steady winds and rains to cause them to scatter precipitously. The heart is subject to incessant pangs of emotion as the young leaves are growing out. Orange blossoms are famous for evoking memories, but the fragrance of plum blossoms above all makes us return to the past and remember nostalgically long-ago events. of anointing the Buddha and the Kamo festival come around and the leaves on the treetops grow thick and cool. Our sensitivity to the touching beauty of the world and our longing for absent friends grows stronger. Indeed, this is so. When in the fifth month the irises bloom and the rice seedlings are transplanted, can anyone remain untroubled by the drumming of the water rails? And then in the sixth month you can see the white of the moon flowers glowing over wretched hovels and the smoldering of mosquito incense is affecting too. The purification rites of the sixth month are also engrossing. The celebration of Tanabata is charming, and then as the nights gradually become cold and the wild geese cry, the underleaves of the hagi turn yellow and the men harvest and dry the first crop of rice. So many moving sights come together in autumn especially, and how unforgettable is the morning after an equinoctial storm. As I go on, I realize that these sites have long since been enumerated in the tale of Genji and the pillow book and 
I make no pretense of trying to avoid saying the same things again. If I fail to say what lies on my mind, it gives me a feeling of flatulence. I shall, therefore, give my brush free rein. Mine is a foolish diversion, but these pages are meant to be torn up and no one is likely to see them. To return to the subject, winter decay is hardly less beautiful than autumn. Crimson leaves lie scattered on the grass beside the ponds, and how delightful it is on the morning when the frost is very white to see the vapor rise from a garden stream. At the end of the year, it is indescribably moving to see everyone hurrying about on errands. There is something forlorn about the waning winter moon shining cold and clear in the sky, unwatched, because it is said to be depressing. The invocation of the Buddha names and the departure of the messengers with the imperial offerings are moving and inspiring. How impressive it is that so many palace ceremonials are performed besides all the preparations for the new year. It is striking that the worship of the four directions follows directly on the expulsion of the demons. On the last night of the year, when it is extremely dark, People light pine torches and go rushing about, pounding on the gates of strangers until well after midnight. I wonder what it signifies. After they have done with their exaggerated shouting and running so furiously that their feet hardly touch the ground, the noise at last fades away with the coming of the dawn, leaving a lonely feeling of regret over the departing old year. The custom of paying homage to the dead in the belief that they return that night has lately disappeared from the capital, but I was deeply moved to discover that it was still performed in the east. As the day thus breaks on the new year, the sky seems no different from what it was the day before. But one feels somehow changed and renewed. The main thoroughfare is decorated there full length with pine boughs, seem cheerful and festive and this too is profoundly affecting. A certain hermit once said there was one thing that even I, who have no worldly entanglements, would be sorry to give up. The beauty of the sky. I can understand why he should have felt this way. Twenty-two. In all things, I yearn for the past. Modern fashions seem to keep on growing more and more debased. I find that even among the splendid pieces of furniture built by our master cabinet makers, those in the old forms are the most pleasing. And as for writing letters, surviving scraps from the past reveal how superb the phrasing used to be. The ordinary spoken language is also steadily coarsened. People used to say, Raise the carriage shafts. Or, Trim the lamp wick. And people today just say, Raise, Raise it, it, or trim, trim it. it. When they should say, Let the men of the palace staff stand forth. They say, 
Torches, let's have some light. Instead of calling the place where the lectures of the Sutra of the Golden Light are delivered before the Emperor, the Hall of the Imperial Lecture, they short it to Lecture Hall. A deplorable corruption, the old gentleman complained. 23. They speak of the degenerate final phase of the world, yet how splendid is the ancient atmosphere, uncontaminated by the world that still prevails within the palace walls. The dew terrace, the morning collation, the this hall, the that gate, all have an impressive ring. Even objects that might equally well be found in some humble place such as half windows and blinds, a veranda of small boards, or a tall sliding door, sound quite splendid when the term is used of the palace. It is particularly impressive when the cry goes up in the antechamber, prepare for night. It is pleasing too that they should call for the lanterns in his majesty's bedchamber. Light the lamps quickly. The looks of smug competence on the faces of even minor officials of the palace staff, to say nothing of the great nobles performing official functions, are amusing. I was particularly entertained one extremely cold winter night to see these functionaries dozing through the ceremonies at their stations here and there in the halls. The Tokodaiji Prime Minister once remarked, the dancers' bells in the Hall of the Sacred Mirror had a lovely, noble sound. Twenty-five. The world is as unstable as the pools and shallows of Asuka River. Times change and things disappear, joy and sorrow come and go. The place that once thrived turns into an uninhabited moor. The house may remain unaltered, but the occupants will have changed. Peach and the damson trees in the garden say nothing. With whom is one to reminisce about the past? I feel this sense of impermanence even more sharply when I see the remains of a house which long ago before I knew it must have been imposing. Whenever I pass by the ruins of the Kyogoku Palace, the Hojoji and similar buildings, it moves me to think that the aspiration of the builders still lingers on, though the edifices themselves have changed completely. When Fujiwara no Michinaga erected so magnificent a temple, administering so many states' support, he supposed that his descendants would always serve the emperor as pillars of the state. Could he have imagined that the temple would fall into such ruin no matter what times lay ahead? 
The great gate and the golden hall were still standing until recent years, but the gate burned during the Showa era, and the golden hall soon afterwards fell over. It still lies there, and no attempt has been made to restore it. Only the Murioju Hall remains as a memento of the temple's former glory. Nine images of Amida Buddha, each 16 feet tall, stand in a row most awesomely. It is extremely moving to see still plainly visible the plaque inscribed by the major counselor Kose and the door inscription by Kaneyuki. I understand that the Hokke Hall and perhaps other buildings are still standing. I wonder how much longer they too will last. Some buildings that lack even such remains may survive merely as foundation stones, but no one knows for certain to what they once belonged. It is true in all things that it is a futile business trying to plan for a future one will never know. and years I spent as the intimate of someone whose affections have now faded like cherry blossoms scattering even before a wind blew. 26. I still remember every word of hers that once so moved me. And when I realize that she, as happens in such cases, is steadily slipping away from my world, I feel a sadness greater even than that of separation from the dead. That is why I'm sure. A man once grieved that white thread should be dyed in different colors, and why another lamented that roads inevitably fork. Among the hundred verses presented to the retired emperor Horikawa, one runs. The fence around her house. The woman I loved long ago is ravaged and fallen. Only violets remain mingled with the spring weeds. What a lonely picture. The poem must describe something that really occurred. Twenty-eight. Nothing is more saddening than a year of imperial mourning. The very appearance of the temporary palace is forbidding. The wooden floor built close to the ground, the cruelly fashioned reed blinds, the coarse gray cloth hung above the blinds. The utensils of rough workmanship and the attendants all wearing strangely drab costumes, sword scabbards, and sword knots. 29. When I sit down in quiet meditation, the one emotion hardest to fight against is a longing in all things for the past. After the others have gone to bed, I pass the time on a long autumn's night by putting in order whatever belongings are at hand. As I tear up scraps of old correspondence I should prefer not to leave behind, I sometimes find among them samples of the calligraphy of a friend who has died or pictures he drew for his own amusement and I feel exactly as I did at the time. Even with letters written by friends who are still alive. I try when it has been long since we met to remember the circumstances and the year. 
What a moving experience that is. It's sad to think that a man's familiar possessions, indifferent to his death, should remain unaltered long after he is gone. Hmm. Nothing is sadder than the time after a death. During the 49 days of mourning, the family, having moved to a temple in the mountains or some such place, forgathers in large numbers and inconvenient, cramped quarters, and frantically occupies itself with the motions of mourning for the dead. The days pass unbelievably fast. On the final day, all civility gone, no one has a word for anybody else, and each man, with airs of knowing exactly what is to be done, sets about packing his belongings. Then all go their separate ways. Once they've returned home, any sadder remembrances are sure to afflict them anew. Sometimes I hear people say in such occasions, it's bad luck to mention such and such a thing. You should avoid it for the family's sake. How can people worry about such things in the midst of so great a tragedy? The insensitivity of people still appalls me. We do not by any means forget the dead, even after months and years have gone by. But as they say, the departed one grows more distant each day. We may deny it, but no doubt, because our sorrow is not as sharp as at the time, we talk about foolish things, we smile. The body is interred in some lonely mountain and visited only at the required times. Before long, the grave marker is covered with moss and buried in fallen leaves. The evening storms and the night moon become the only regular mourners. As long as people remember the deceased person and miss him, all is still well. But before long, these people too disappear, and the descendants who knew the man only from reports are hardly likely to feel deep emotion. Once the services honoring the dead man cease, nobody knows who he was or even his name. Only the sight of the spring weeds sprouting each year by his grave will stir the emotions of sensitive people. But in the end, even the pine tree that groaned in the storm winds is broken into firewood before it reaches its allotted thousand years, and the old grave is plowed up and turned into rice land. How sad it is that even this last memento of the dead should vanish. Today I had a fantasy about the moment. Okay, so I was watching Totoro with my son, and the dad says, Mo ichiki da yo? And not looking at the subtitles, 
not knowing if he was referring to a town called Ichiki that they were headed, or if they only had one kilometer or Ichikiro left to travel. I had to guess that that was maybe in a period appropriate abbreviation for one more kilometer to go. And it got me thinking, when did Japan adopt the metric system? And was that weird when the Americans were occupying the place? Were there like comedians making jokes about having to do metric to imperial conversions at the time? Or is it just something that they chalked up to cultural differences? Not having the urge to, it's so hard for me to understand what could be look that up on Wikipedia is a truly liberating feeling. Not having to be right. Not having to know a fact and just to speculate on a possible history. Maybe we're going to have a whole renaissance of people not knowing things and not caring to look them up on their phones. Not, not caring, but you know what I mean? Just going around and being and experiencing our own ignorance, like in a good way, factually, with awareness, that would be really poetic and beautiful and so fluid. A whole country or world even just frolicking around carefree in our dad bods and dumb phones. I feel an incredible pressure to understand the world, to understand the truth, to know a truth and stand behind it and defend it. And this idea has almost no value to me, but I continually struggle with the pursuit of knowledge out of some kind of fear of missing out. Kenko was born around 1284, three years after the second attempt of Kublai Khan, grandson of Genghis Khan. three years after his second attempt at attacking Japan via the Korean Peninsula. Actually, eight years before that, Kublai Khan dispatched an emissary with a letter. Cherished by the mandate of heaven, 
the great Mongol emperor sends this letter to the king of Japan. The sovereigns of small countries sharing borders with each other have for a long time been concerned to communicate with each other and become friendly. Especially since my ancestor governed at heaven's command, innumerable countries from afar disputed our power and slighted our virtue. Goryeo rendered thanks for my ceasefire and for restoring their land and people when I ascended the throne. Our relation is feudatory like a father and son. We think you already know this. Goryeo is my eastern tributary. Japan was allied with Goryeo and sometimes with China since the founding of your country. However, Japan has never dispatched ambassadors since my ascending to the throne. We're afraid that the kingdom is yet to know this. Hence, we dispatched a mission with our letter, particularly expressing our wishes, in turn, to friendly relations with one another from now on. We think all countries belong to one family. How are we in the right unless we comprehend this? Nobody would wish to resort to arms. Japanese historians have been noted to exaggerate claims that the Japanese were outnumbered 10 to 1 by the Mongols. But the subsequent attack was the largest attempted naval invasion in the history of Japan, only eclipsed in 1944 by D-Day. The Mongols attempted two invasions, the first of which took place on Hakata Bay. Finding that it was harder to defeat the samurai than they had planned, the Mongols withdrew to their ships, at which point their entire fleet was struck by a giant typhoon. There were somewhere between 500 and 1,000 ships carrying upwards of 30,000 men. The typhoon killed 13,000 of them, sank a third of the ships, and damaged the rest, and the Mongols retreated home. After which, the Japanese built a two-meter-high seawall. Seven years later, when the Mongols returned, they could not enter Japan because of the wall. They stayed floating for months. Awesome wall. Running out of food after which the fleet was destroyed by another typhoon. Khan was estimated to have traveled with 4,400 ships and an estimated 140,000 soldiers. After months of unsuccessfully trying to enter Japan, the Japanese forces killed nearly every single one of them outnumbered by the world's greatest army. And so, to commemorate the event, they named these two typhoons the Kamikaze, winds of the gods, divine wind. I believe that the most charming and touching sight is the shrine in the fields when an imperial princess is in residence. It is amusing how the people there avoid Buddhist words like sutra or Buddha and speak instead of colored paper 
or the one inside, Shinto shrines as a rule are too charming to pass without stopping. There's something peculiarly affecting about the atmosphere of their ancient groves. And how could the buildings surrounded by a vermilion fence with sacred streamers tied to the sakaki bows fail to impress? Especially splendid are Issei, Kamo, Kasuga, Hirano, Sumiyoshi, Miwa,